Hi, you're listening to Talking Your Way to Change, and I'm your host, Sand Banker. If you or anyone that you've ever loved has suffered from an addiction, you know pain, you know powerlessness, and feelings of rage. Anne Lamott described the later stages of her addiction as that she was deteriorating faster than she could lower her standards. This is not only descriptive for the person with the addiction, I think it also describes what happens to the loved ones whose needs go more and more unmet and the boundaries between themselves and the person who is addicted disintegrate. Once you learn how alcohol acts on the brain, you might be surprised that it's actually legal. However, my motivation is not to judge people's alcohol use or move towards prohibition. My motivation is to educate communities interested in mental health and psychotherapy about alcohol addiction. Alcohol abuse creates a complex interaction in our brains with two neurotransmitters at the forefront, dopamine and serotonin. Dopamine is important for memory, learning, movement, and coordination. Many people know dopamine as the pleasure reward neurotransmitter. The brain releases dopamine during pleasurable activities. Serotonin is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. It helps us regulate our mood, our appetites, blood clotting, sleep, and the body's circadian rhythm. Let's look at each neurotransmitter. Let's look at dopamine first. Dopamine plays a role in learning. If I'm hungry, my brain will tell me to eat, and then it will reward me with a little shot of dopamine that is reinforcing that I have done the right thing. I've correctly eaten and that's what my body wanted. If I eat chocolate, my brain will give me maybe a titch more dopamine and eventually I might start craving chocolate. Alcohol or any addiction causes imbalances of dopamine in the brain. If I use alcohol, my brain will give me a good old spike of dopamine. Now my brain is beginning to become recalibrated. I am no longer registering small hits of dopamine, such as my obligations to work or my obligations to my relationships. Now my brain is looking for the big spikes. I'm looking for the alcohol. I'm looking for the spikes of the substance in which I become addicted to. Over time, alcohol use, however, can and does overload the brain with too much dopamine and the brain responds. It recalibrates again by reducing the dopamine receptor sites in this process. So the same amount of alcohol that I drink is not giving me the same amount of dopamine release. So then you start to drink more to get back to that spike of dopamine that you once had. And this is how tolerance develops. At the stage that dopamine's effect has diminished, a drinker is often hooked on the feeling of the dopamine release in the reward center. So even though they're not getting it, they still want it. This creates a compulsion, a need to go back again and again for that release because it was established and the addiction takes hold. The length of time it takes for this to happen is case-specific. Some people have a genetic propensity for alcoholism, and for them, it takes very little time, while for others, it may may take several weeks, months, or years. 
Now let's talk about the role of serotonin. While the short-term effect of alcohol may boost serotonin, a chemical that increases feelings of happiness and well-being, the long-term repercussions of heavy alcohol use often include a decrease in serotonin production, leading to an increased chance of depression. Now, once you quit drinking, both serotonin production and dopamine receptor sites will eventually become recalibrated and return to normal. However, this could take quite some time. It might, you know, the estimates that I've sort of read is it could even actually take up to a year. So this is what's so important in terms of recovery, right? Like people often might think, oh, I go into treatment for 90 days or 30 days. And then after that time, you know, most of the work has been done and I should be good to go. But actually, a person um, may be sober or they may be um, dry or not have used alcohol for that period of time. But really, the real work begins, the recovery work, that, I, that that's what I like to call it, begins when you get out of treatment and you integrate back into your life because you're going to need a lot of support in this recovery period. And you can see why relapse is actually typically seen as a part of the whole process. It takes a long time for our brains to recalibrate, okay? This is not about willpower. This is about recovering our brains. This is a medical disease. And during that time that we're kind of recalibrating, some people may benefit from medications to help control or balance the dopamine and serotonin that might be um, imbalanced because of the alcohol use. But by eliminating the alcohol from the equation, you can then better understand your mental health and determine what it is that you need to feel your best. Once the alcohol has been removed, you might also identify, hey, I might have some trauma that's left untreated, okay? And then I, I want to talk about in our next episode how having trauma in your history is a, often a precursor to some form of addiction and how if you do have trauma, it really does set you up to be more vulnerable to relapse one year sober. Alcohol also impacts the cerebral cortex, and this is where the thought processing and consciousness are centered. Alcohol depresses behavioral inhibitory centers, making the person less inhibited. It slows down the processing of information from the eyes, the ears, the mouth, and other senses, and it inhibits the thought processes, making it really difficult to think clearly. This is likely why people make bad decisions when they're intoxicated. They might make decisions that are potentially dangerous or harmful to them or others. They might engage in some behaviors that they later regret the next day. Maybe they engaged in some sexual behavior that they regret the next day. Maybe they decided to get behind the wheel and drive. Maybe they disclosed more information about themselves that they later regret. So although you might be having a lot of fun while drinking 
and you might feel less anxious while drinking with your friends. You just need to know that you might not be putting your best foot forward. You might not necessarily be sharing your most authentic and wise self. In summary, alcohol abuse causes complex changes in the brain that drive the addiction. And understanding the powerful chemicals that are at play in driving such compulsive behavior is the first step towards developing self-compassion if you have an alcohol use disorder. Everyone has something about themselves that they don't like, something that causes them to feel shame, to feel insecure, to feel inadequate and not enough. Self-compassion does not mean that we're not responsible for dealing with our lives. It doesn't mean that we should be self-indulgent. Having an alcohol use disorder means that you need support to fully recover. In our last episode, I gave a few resources for getting support. Today, another resource is called Smart Recovery Online. They have weekly online meetings, discussion forms, and support. Go to smartrecovery.org. Until next time, this is Dr. Banker. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for listening. I need to alert you that this podcast is not meant to be a substitution for mental health treatment. Although we talk about psychotherapy, this is not your psychotherapy. If listeners are interested in pursuing therapy, I would refer you to psychologytoday.com backslash US or your insurance carrier network.